0: Welcome to another episode of Nooner Conversations. I'm your host, Scott Lay. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to sit down with two of my friends, Ray Labov and Chris Michaelia, to talk about the new book that they were the editors of called A Practitioner's Guide to Lobbying and Advocacy in California. It's a manual written by leading government relations professionals. They wanted me to reiterate that it's not the two of them. It's over 40 different experienced authors, and I was thumbing through the table of contents and saw many names that are very familiar to me. They talk about what it takes uh, to to be an effective lobbyist, it's a good uh, book to put on your bookshelf to pull out when you need to pull together a coalition and hear from some of the best minds in Sacramento, as well as a book to thumb through uh, in case you're thinking about going into lobbying. All proceeds of the book go to support political science graduate students. And uh, it was a great conversation. We even went back memory lane to my times as a a kid lobbyist, a little story from a bathroom with Paul Mitchell. It sounds less than that, or it sounds more than it turns out to be. But it's a good lesson that all walls have ears in the Capitol. And uh, I wish I would have left the microphone on after we stopped talking, after we stopped recording because we then continued on memory lane and we talked about that great speakership battle of 1995, the year in which Willie Brown, Doris Allen and Brian Sutton, were all speakers before uh, Kirk Pringle took over uh, for the Republicans in January of uh, 1996. And it came to my mind after we finished talking yesterday, that it's the 25th anniversary of that year. So I'll be writing more about the sequence of events that were Uh, very formative to this very junior lobbyist at the time in my first year uh, full-time up here in Sacramento as I was at UC Davis undergraduate student. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I hope you pick up the book. I will send out, I I will link to uh, how you can order this book uh, in uh, the show notes, and I uh, hope that you enjoy it, and I look forward to reading more of it myself. Here is Ray Labov and Chris McKaylee and Scott Lay hosting the conversation. Hello, welcome. Today I'm here with my good friend Chris McKaylee and Ray Labov. Uh, I don't think I've ever spent time with Ray although um, I've been invited to come uh, free to to his seminar uh, on lobbying and his advanced seminars many times and unfortunately my general rule is, if it's over a, an hour and a half see <laughs> luncheon, I can't go, you know? It's really hard for me to block off entire days. But Well, you're
1: certainly welcome to come for part of one, yeah. and, and to make clear, it's not for the purpose of you learning anything, it's for the purpose, I love having people who are veterans come because they're great at critiquing it, and that's very valuable uh, to me.
0: I look forward to it. And of course, Chris, uh, we had on at, uh, when I was doing Sacktown Talks uh, by the Nooner with my friend Gibran Maciel, we had Chris on to talk about the year in review right after the legislative session ended, and that was one of our most popular episodes. Today we're talking about the art of lobbying, and the two of you have a new book out, um, and I well, see it, it's actually us. called The Art. Not just us. It, it's not. They're the editors. It's, the, it's a practitioner's guide to lobbying and advocacy in California. Um, so the editors are Chris McKaylee and Ray LeBove. Um, so why don't you tell me about what got you, did you become the editors and wrangle up people or the other way around?
2: <laughs> no, that, that is. So about four or five years ago, Ray actually asked me to uh, come and teach in the Lobbying 201 seminar on regulatory advocacy. And I had always been looking at the bookstore or wherever on books on lobbying to see what was out there. And so I asked Ray, you know, you've been doing this twice as long as I have. What do you have out there? And so he actually lent me, I don't know, seven or eight books, and I rifled through most of them. There were one, one or two that weren't bad. Um, I think I
0: had most of them on my on my shelf, and I, shelf? Yeah. I think I, that's where they were when I left.
2: <laughs> well, I tried to go through them, but of course, as you can probably imagine, most of them dealt with federal lobbying and. Many of them were from, uh, you know, like college professors who had worked on Capitol Hill 25 years ago or whatever else. There really wasn't anything California specific. And so Ray and I started chatting after some of the 201 seminars, and I said, You know, you've probably got lots of material just here in your seminars. Uh, what would you think about maybe, and I've written lots of articles over the years about the lobbying practice and the legislative practice. So I said, what would you think about collaborating on a book? And Ray said, sure, let's let's talk about it. And so we sort of formulated um, a set of topics that we wanted to cover, what mm-hmm. ultimately is now the 45 chapters of the book. Uh, it, it varied, I think, from a low of maybe 25, 30 to a high of 55 or 60 at one point. But slowly but surely, we got to a list. And then we, we talked about it and realized it was a pretty large undertaking for two people. <laughs> and we also thought maybe it's not the perfect book for, you know, the California lobbying world, according to Ray and Chris. Mm-hmm. And so we said, well, what do you think about maybe reaching out to some of our colleagues in the lobbying profession? Would they be interested? And so we finalized a list of chapters And then started going after some of our colleagues saying, Would you like to participate in this project? And sure, there were a few who uh, couldn't due to time constraints or others, but pretty much everyone said yes.
0: Well, this would have been, it looks like it would have been a great textbook for my legislative process at King Hall, which was taught by Larry Brown, now on the Sacramento Superior Court bench. And he used to stand in front. There were a few of us, Dan Felozzato, I think, was in that class. And so, They were and, and Larry would look at us and say, okay, well, you guys know more about this than I do, so why don't is you this just this the way lead? it really works? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so we're going to come back to you, Chris, for a little bit more on your background. But um, is that did, is what Chris just told you about the book, right? And uh, and beyond that, tell us a little bit more about your background, Ray.
1: Okay. Well, first I'll say what Chris said is exactly correct. That's, uh, that's how things did transpire. They were born and transpired. and um, You know, it was a... Uh, I think that was a very insightful thing that we arrived at, um, probably relatively easily, that this is much too big for two people to do. And the other point is making, it's also very important that um, while we do know a lot by virtue of of having been around for so many years, it's really good to get some other people, experts' perspectives Mm -hmm. reflected in there. So I I agree totally with what um, Chris has to say in that regard. Um, My background... Uh, I started working in the legislature in 19, do I have to admit this? Okay. Yes. 1975, <laughs> before either one of you were born. I was born. <laughs> before most of your listeners were born. Um, and I worked in the legislature for uh, 17 years, uh, the last 12 of which were a, uh, as counsel to the Assembly Judiciary Committee. So did you
0: actually see the last veto override in the legislature? Under Brown 1.0, I
1: just missed it. You just yeah, missed it. Okay, a death cause... penalty uh, <laughs> yeah. override. Um, but I do, re- I do speak about that in the class and tell them. That, okay, I've talked to you about all these real powers that occur. There's also a theoretical power that the legislature has. And the key which had, is to override, four, right? You know, right? There, I think there were
0: four. We, we This became a Twitter conversation in the last few days. I don't it's remember. never
1: going to happen again. And when do you yeah. think the last one that happened was? During Brown 1. Um, yep. <laughs> okay. So... Um, uh, Anyway, I worked for the last uh, 12 of those as uh, counsel to the Assembly Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. And then along came uh, the term limits measure, Mm -hmm. uh, which um, in addition to term limits had- uh, (laughs) For the people
0: inside the Capitol, we didn't care about term, I wasn't there, but term limits was not the big (laughs) issue.
1: 38% reduction in legislative budgets. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, each house decided that the only way that they could comply with that is to incent the most senior staff to leave, because after all, almost the entire budget was mm-hmm. consisted of personnel. And so um, they came up with very attractive uh, severance packages. In the assembly for senior staff, it was five months. And then in addition to that, uh rules committee came out with a memo that said, uh, if you stay, you will uh, forfeit your accrued vacation. <laughs> and I had four months of crew vacation. Huh. However, within, it seemed like minutes, uh, the state labor commissioner said, not so fast. You can't do that. Right. Even you as the legislature can't do that. Uh, so they put out a, revi- you have to give notice and an opportunity to use it. Right. Um, and so the legislature revised that memo and it was almost as draconian as the original one. Really? So I thought, you know, four months of accrued vacation, five months of um Okay. severance package, yeah. and so nine. I said, when will I ever, and much as I loved what I was doing, and I thought it was a great job and very rewarding, when am I ever going to have nine months to be paid to figure out what I want to do next? Mm-hmm. So I decided, okay, it's time for me <laughs> to leave. Very difficult decision, but I did. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll take these next few months and just figure out what I want to do. So two weeks later, I get a call from the chief justice who says, oh, by the way, I want you to be... Uh, the director of the Office of Governmental Affairs for the State Judicial Council, which mm. many of your listeners know is the administrative, constitutional administrative body for the courts. And I, and I was advised by several people that told me, lawyers don't say no to the chief justice. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll do it. So my nine months turned into three weeks. And for the next 13 years, I was the director of the Office of Governmental Affairs for the Judicial Council. And so then along comes another sort of economic or fiscal decision to make because, as you know, the PERS retirement system, which is um, years of service and age formula based, at some point you've put in enough service that you're getting close to donating your services. Mm -hmm. So at that point I said, you know, I think what I'm going to do is retire from state service. I had 30 years. I had 17 with the legislature, 13 with the court system. And I said, you know, but I'm, as you can tell, far too young to have really retired. (laughs) So I uh, started my own lobbying and consulting firm. I had a big decision to make at that point, whether to try to do something on a grand scale or a small scale. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to figure myself as sort of semi-retired. I'm not going to want to hire employees, et cetera. Well, first thing that happened was because I'd been around for so long and had networked with so many people... I got far too many clients than I could handle I mean, without even mm-hmm. trying to recruit any. And I had six within a month. And I'm thinking, this is not a job for one person. Right. <laughs> so I decided right then and there, you know what? I still want to stay small, but I'm going to be, I'm only going to take on, I'm going to be much more selective on clients because I had the luxury of having my pension as a floor. Mm-hmm. So I cut way back on that. So after, about two years into that, and I still take on an occasional client if I, really believe in what they're trying to accomplish. Um, But two years into that, I said, you know what? I really need to share what I've learned with people. So I started Capital Seminars. That was 2007. Hmm. And we've been doing it ever since. We do um, a set of two, an introductory one and an advanced one, about eight times a year, back to back. And then we also do custom sessions for whether it's trade associations or individual companies or unions or interest uh, uh public interest groups or a lot of state agencies mm-hmm. a lot of so that's uh that's pretty much my my history
0: Huh. and chris uh we got into your a lot of your background we did the podcast uh yeah. back in uh, september i guess it was but you don't have a capital from my recollection you didn't work inside the capital but no, is
2: only it, in the u.s Capitol. you oh, worked in the u.s capitol yeah for Vic Fazio, um, a former you have a legal yeah,
0: background, but why don't you talk about, I mean, I, I think a lot of people that are listening heard that episode because, as I said, it was one of the most popular ones. It's still on um, on the AroundTheCapital.com podcast website, but why don't you talk a little bit more about your work um, with McGeorge School of Law and the professional nature of lobbying because I think that's instructive to what we're talking about this afternoon.
2: Yeah, well... About half a dozen years ago, uh, a colleague of mine in the lobbying profession who is an adjunct at McGeorge asked me if I'd be interested in teaching over there, and I said, you know, it's something down the road in another 15 years or something that I'd be interested in doing. And uh, we had coffee a couple of times, and then, lo and behold, Anthony Williams, Mm -hmm. who is now the governor's legal affairs secretary had gotten a, a job and had to give up because he was moving out of Sacramento, uh, a course that he and another gentleman were uh, co-teaching. And so I, they asked whether or not I and Diane Boyer Vine, the legislative council would be interested in taking it over and she and I chatted and realized that as much as we both wanted to do this, maybe down the road, When we were ready, maybe the course wasn't ready. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So we both jumped in with both feet and turned it into a graded course with um, uh, several requirements, of course, exams, but also the students have two requirements. One is to write a bill um, and to draft amendments to that bill, and then also to write a policy committee analysis of their bill. Um, and so we've done that course the last five years, and as part of that, you know, I've tried to uh, write some pieces over the years in Capital Weekly and elsewhere that sort of highlights not only the lobbying profession but also some key aspects of the legislative process. So that's why it seemed sort of natural when Ray and I talked about. And you have a lot. You have a a, a a
0: lobbying practice now. We're in your office uh, with a span of clients. Uh, tr- probably a lot on the business oriented side
2: yeah but also some public sector including the LA Metro transit of which Orleans, so, people you know. don't
0: always realize that or rarely realize that you know I was for 20 years I was an advocate for community colleges of course, that yeah. business everything that you know regulatory business decisions of the state affect local government entities Certainly, and even, even state government entities that weigh in uh, Ray was talking about judicial counsel which rarely gets involved in the that's the high stakes political fights in the Capitol, right. but decisions in the Capitol affect the Judicial Council, and the Judicial Council gets to step in and say, you know, we might have a problem here. And you also mentioned Diane Boyer Vine, who I uh, I didn't I never had her as an instructor, but she was in the American Inns of Court, affiliated yes. with UC Davis right. and Milton Schwartz. Right. And uh, what a joy. For those that don't understand what the Legislative Council is, it is a nonpartisan Um, And that's truly in a sense oftentimes people say oh nonpartisan How can anything be nonpartisan when the Democrats have two-thirds of both legislatures? No, the Legislative Council literally has to write bills and, and analyses from every member of the legislature and they can be wacky on the right and wacky on the left we can remember some of John Burton's you know, his statement makers when Pete Wilson was governor, you know, it's a crime it's to be poor. We're, we're reopening the orphanages and all of that. Well, that's, that's great. Uh, you know, so now both of you have legal backgrounds. Do you talk in here? This is, is this a book for people that when they get their first lobbying job or is this a book for somebody that's saying, you know, this might be a career Avenue down the road and what should be the path that I take to get there?
1: You know, I think it's for all of the above that um, it's, we hope and we think, very useful at every stage. And I think somebody who is preparing or even thinking about going into it really would get a lot from it because it would give them some very um, intense flavor of what it's like and what it, what um, they need to uh, be good at and what they need to learn how to do and what they're likely to be facing, et cetera. Et cetera. But I think at the same time, once you're in the practice and i sort of carry this over from what i've seen of people who take the seminars because it's the same sort of question apply there um that you know if for example they're not succeeding at the level that they think they would like to or should uh, i think this book can be very helpful for explaining to them okay here's an alternative way to doing it that really is a best practice and that kind of thing so I think at every single stage, starting at the very first stage that you talked about, decision-making whether to go into it or preparing to go into it once you've made that decision or as a practitioner, I would say it applies with equal weight for, for all of those. And then probably a couple I haven't even mentioned.
2: So over the well, year, I, oh, Go yeah, ahead. If I could just add, um, I mean, in, in the answer to your question, I, I think hopefully both, I think a couple of the unique things are Hey, obviously, by reading a book, even multiple books, isn't going to make you an expert. What we tried to do was touch upon everything from becoming a lobbyist, whether it's you know, the legal qualifications or we do a piece on you know, where to find lobbying jobs, to the, pri- the, to the practice itself, like how do you start a firm, how do you get clients, how do you run an operation, mm-hmm to sort of the mechanics of lobbying, then some specialized areas of lobbying, you know, like at the CTC and the PUC, to give people a real flavor. I mean, I would say that uh, it's unique because it gives you insights into a number of different areas. Yes, just because you read a lot, uh, the chapter on X, you know, running coalitions, doesn't make you a coalition expert, but Hopefully it gives you some insight into what it's like in doing so and what are the benefits and shortfalls. I think the other unique aspect of this, and along those original lines of where I said Ray and I decided The Lobbying World According to Ray and Chris is probably not a great book. The nice thing about this is with 40 co-authors, and everything is in those authors' own voice. You know, when we first called somebody and said, You know, this is what we're doing. Would you be interested? Yes. Well, we thought you would be ideal for this chapter. Mm -hmm. Everyone, as you could imagine, is, well, who's the audience? Well, just about anybody, (laughs) be Mm -hmm. it a college textbook, a law school textbook, or folks who work at the state capitol who want to leave the building and get into lobbying. So it's from soup to nuts. The other question that every uh, contributor asked was, okay, is there a standard format? your chapter no it's we agree to the topic the chapter title and that's it how you want to address it and what you want to share in other words each of these chapters are the voice of those who wrote the chapter they don't follow the same format some are four pages some are ten pages you know
0: so it's akin to some of those syllabi that we got in college (laughs) Uh, not not the syllabi at the beginning of the semester it tells you when the exams are going to be. But the syllabi, when you'd go and actually buy the syllabi at the college bookstore or law school bookstore, and it was a series of the best articles that the professor had put together. Um, and, and So different voices.
2: Exactly. And Scott, you can imagine, look, the three of us and certainly many of your listeners will probably rifle through the table of contents and recognize most, if not all, the names. Mm-hmm. If somebody... Outside of our little world here, or a college student buys it, they wouldn't know Ray from me, and vice versa, mm-hmm. or anyone else in the book. But those who are aware, I think you would generally concur that a lot of these people are the leading voices. I mean, I like to cite, for example, uh, you know, Aaron Reed has had a successful sh- lobbying shop for almost 50 years. So who better to write a chapter on running a successful lobbying firm, right? Uh, The California Chamber of Commerce has long been known as a great uh, organizer and someone who runs successful lobbying coalitions. Mm -hmm. So their former executive vice president wrote the chapter on leading coalitions. I mean, it's that sort of stuff that we're hoping, we, we hope to have gotten many of the leading folks. Look, there are 1,500 registered lobbyists, a different group of 40 could have written you know, this as well, and you can't have 1,500 chapters in the book because everyone's got some unique experiences. So ha- obviously we had to narrow the field of potential uh, contributors, but hopefully we got a lot of the leading folks out there on these different chapters. So yeah,
1: the 40 that are going to be in volume two is going to reduce it to 14, <laughs> 1,420. <that are> still... <laughs> exactly
0: right. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, first, the, the background of what it takes to be a lobbyist Um, The avenues that people get into lobbying, as well as the traits of great individual lobbyists. There's also the structural issues that that are obviously addressed in the book. But um, first, um, people get into the Capitol or the Capitol scene. I was never in the Capitol uh, through a variety of routes. I became a student government person. I transferred to Davis, and, Mm -hmm. and I worked on community college student issues. And they said, hey, would you like to come on and have an internship? And I thought I wanted to work in a computer lab in Birkenstocks on Davis campus and flirt with girls, but then they said, oh, we're gonna give you an office in the center hotel and a parking pass and pay you more than you're getting at the computer lab. It's kind of hard to say no. It
1: doesn't get any better. Dad, can I
0: borrow some suits? (laughs)
1: Um,
0: But, um, you know, people come in through different routes. You mentioned, uh, Chris, that you came from DC. Ray, you came from the Capitol via the Judicial Council. Um, Is there a right? Some people come in by being a longtime staffer that come in through campaigns. But is there an ideal pathway? Because I've been asked that question for years. What's the best pathway? I want to be a lobbyist. Tell me exactly what I need to do. And I've never given a a right answer.
1: Well, I I think there's a a number of answers to that question. One you've alluded to. And I think that um, working in the building... Um, is a great pathway to doing it because you develop expertise in a certain subject matter area or a range of subject matter areas. You're certainly exposed to a lot of people already in the third house that um, not only do you develop personal relationships with, but they necessarily would become, if you're good, um, impressed with the quality of your work and say, you know what? I've had to deal with this person for all this time on my issues. Wouldn't it be great if they were advocating? Really, you want to listen
0: to Irwin. (laughs) Irwin actually (laughs) knows something about this issue. He knows about guns. (laughs) He knows about guns and he knows about uh, contract chaptering out.
1: (laughs) So I think that's a a great way. Um, You know, you mentioned that, but certainly that's one way. I don't think there's such a thing as the way and there's a whole host of other things, but I will tell you that one of the things that I think is really important for somebody to do is to really answer some threshold questions and figure out um, what they want to do. And I get this question asked a lot from people like, "Okay, gee, I want to get into the lobbying business. What do I do? And you can't be scattershot. I mean, you need to, I say, figure out what kind of lobbyist do you want to be and do some research on the Secretary of State's site do you want to work for a large firm? Do you want to work yep. for a small firm? Do you want to open your own practice? Do you want to go to work for a cause entity? Do you want to lobby for a state agency? Yep. You know, Look at the client lists of various groups. Um, I've left out a bunch of other things. Do you want to work for a union? Do you want to you yep. work for trade a public interest, for a trade association, for an individual company? Okay, and there's advantages and disadvantages of each. For example, you want to go work for a big firm There, maybe all your uh, administrative aspects that are taken care of, you don't need to do any of them. On the other hand, you probably are going to be required to be a rainmaker. And it's like, okay, so there's all those trade-offs, right? And maybe you're going to be asked to represent an, uh, an interest that you're opposed to what they're trying to accomplish. So is that okay? Do you want to be a generalist or do you want to be a specialist? Mm-hmm. You know, there's some way, uh, some placements for you that if you're, I don't care. I mean, I'm just interested in so many things and I could do. No, I'm really dedicated to, you know, one side or the other on this particular issue, whether it's education or whether it's environment or whatever it is. So I my view is do your homework, f- figure out. Um, exactly what it is that you would be comfortable doing. You don't want to wind up being a lobbyist in a place where, okay, now I'm a lobbyist, that's great, but I hate going into work every
0: day because it's not a good match for me. So or I want an eight to five job. Or an eight to five job, yeah. I mean, if you, right, I guess that ain't it. <laughs> I mean, there's some great, I mean, the hours aren't awful per se no. because you had yeah, got some great months out of the year here. Exactly. I mean, I used to watch food. I'm my former boss. If he's listening, I mean, I would watch food network during the holiday season. Legislature's gone. They have all these food network shows on. I'd have it on in my office. <laughs> Legisl- no, there's no, legis- nothing's on Cal channel. <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah, and that
1: makes up for your 75 hour weeks. <laughs> exactly. right, right. So yeah, I, I think it's really important to do that kind of thing. And then the other thing I would say at that point, Make a list, for example, if you're thinking of going to work for a firm because it matches their client list, matches what you're interested in, all those other things I talked about. Well, you know, maybe there's a 100 firms that are doing that. Well, figure, narrow it down to and hit as many of them that actually fit what you're interested in. Go see them. Maybe, first of all, a whole huge percentage of lobbying positions never get advertised. It's just word of mouth. And so... Time, first of all, so I would add to that, do some serious networking. But in addition to that, timing is everything. And so you might hit a particular firm at the moment when somebody just left. Now, you can figure out in the legislative cycle when that's more likely to happen. And even, you can ask, can I talk to somebody about this now, even if you're not hiring? And if you can't, at least I can drop off my resume and would you please you know, let me know. And anything. you can check back in with them from time to time. But you really need to, to me, first... Do that research to figure out what's a good match for you, because just being a lobbyist in a situation that's not a match for you is a disaster. And then from there, make yourself visible and, and network.
0: I'd like what you said about um, the generalist aspect, because yeah. people thought that when I left the Community College League after 20 years, they thought that my expertise was all in student success, community college finance. but. I had accrued because of representing local governments. I knew things about. We had electricity direct purchasing consortiums. I knew about things like public safety power shutoffs, even though they hadn't been invented yet. Um, I knew all these arcane retirement issues, and you know, really a cross section of all the different policy areas, which is why I like doing what I do now, because I get to use that, and not just on a snippet on you know snippet basis, but like something comes up, and I'm like. Wow, I know about that. I know about the liability issues of, I, I, I know about the societal need, but also the liability issues of, of requiring community colleges to leave their parking lots open overnight. You know what that yeah. makes
1: me think of is when I worked for the Judiciary Committee, our jurisdiction was so broad because anything that involved any sort of judicial remedy came to our committee regardless of what the subject matter was. So I became, quote, expert in all these areas. Um, just because of that
0: uh, Chris uh, yeah. I'd like you to answer that but I'd also like you to answer a question that I also get frequently which is uh, do you need a graduate degree and if so which one the question used to come up of me Scott you passed the bar but you never practiced why is that why did you go through that why did you go to law school well law school was only eleven thousand dollars a year when <laughs> I went to Davis and so it was an easy answer for yeah. me to tell us a, a staffer I'm like Go to law school. Yeah. It's the like best general, general graduate education you could give. Um, obviously, there's public policy and there's public administration, but um, all of them have gone up dramatically in cost. Sure. Sac State graduate, I think, is still pretty affordable. I haven't looked at it recently. But um, is a graduate degree that much of an advantage and worth the cost? And if so, which one? And then anything else you want to answer on what Ray was talking about?
2: Well... As you know, there's no formal training required to be a lobbyist. I mean, you have to take your photo, fill out the paperwork, pay the 50 bucks a year, and every two years, take the lobbyist ethics course, and that's it. That's the hardest part of it, right? (laughs) Sitting through the two hours. So you can obviously do it with no particular training. Um, Is there a particular background? You know, I would think things that would allow you to – Read, write, and analyze is probably the best, which you do, obviously, a tremendous amount in uh, as an attorney and through law school. Uh, my, the question I most often get is, do you have to be a lawyer? And, of course, I would cite some of the most successful lobbyists in town are, in fact, lawyers.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: On the other hand, some of the most successful lobbyists are not. <laughs> right. So the answer is, no, you don't need one. But it obviously helps you uh, because of the skills, I think, that you develop. You know, your original question to Ray, is there an ideal path? No, because we've seen highly successful lobbyists in this town um, with all sorts of different backgrounds and having gotten into it in different ways. With that being said, I would think that the most common and probably the most beneficial is somebody who has worked either in the state capitol in the legislative branch or somebody out of the executive branch, particularly if you have an interest in regulatory work. Mm -hmm. Um, And why? Well, because as Ray alluded to, you develop some subject matter expertise, either working for a legislator and his or her bill package and the committees that he or she sits on. Um, You develop a lot of contacts in and out of the building. You clearly understand the process Um, And then it really comes down to, you know, what sort of personality do you have? And it's sort of like the legal practice. Do you want to be what we often call like a research attorney, somebody behind Mm -hmm. the scenes? Maybe you like to, you know, track and analyze bills. You like to write fact sheets and advocacy letters for and against and the, um, you know, client alerts and all of that. Then there are others who really like the social aspects they like to Be at the Capitol talking to folks. They like to appear at the committees. They enjoy the, you know, after hours socializing, the fundraising circuit, et cetera. So it's an
0: interesting thing you mentioned because um, I I was mentored um, when I was at the Community College League in my early years by two. uh, One was a registered lobbyist, one was not. Um, But and the one that was a registered lobbyist. Had never worked in the building, but had worked for a state agency, okay. and the one that was not a registered lobbyist had been with, um, I think, Senate Education Committee with Marion Burgesson, okay. and the very two di- very different angles that I learned from. I learned, um, you know, never across the gate at the Senate, um, at the, se- the 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 line at the the gate of the Senate, which the anti-vaxxers never learned last year <laughs> when they actually pushed Jody's sergeants out of the way. Uh, and if I had done that when I was a com- young community college lobbyist, I'd be in cuffs. <laughs> but um, whereas, um, you know, and so I had one who taught me the tricks of the trade inside the building. And it wasn't the person that worked in the building. But when I needed to talk to somebody about wharf or 28.8 and all of the arcane rules that a young kid that's just learning about this Needs to know ledge council deadlines those sorts of things. I went to the person that had worked in the building but didn't go over to the building on a regular basis anymore, but was also a policy expert. So that's interesting. I uh, 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 speaking of those 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 rules, and I want to get you to some of your rules. So think about them as I, I tell a quick story here. Um, some of the the, the the tricks of the trade for lobbyists, or the the do's and don'ts. Well, one one thing that I Will always remember from even before I was in Sacramento, uh, but from a visit to Sacramento was in I believe 1993, spring of '93, I think, and it, and Paul Mitchell, who you might know from Political Data, uh, Paul and I were on the student government, Orange Coast College, and we came up for the district student lobby day, and we were we'd always been told, remember, the walls have ears, you know, and be careful, because. Um, you might think that there are Republicans and Democrats. You might think that there's the Senate and the Assembly, but there's all these relationships, internet working relationships. And um, you know, you be careful because this town does have a long memory. There are some people that pass through quickly. Now we call them legislators. <laughs> no, no offense to my friends in the legislature who have stayed around, and I, I, many of you are my friends. But so uh, Paul and I, we were in the men's bathroom, I which floor it was. And looked around, there's nobody in the men's bathroom. And we're like, so who's next? "Ah, It's Gil Ferguson. It's that cave, that that, um, knuckle-dragging caveman from Orange County. (laughs) He's the one that tried to get Tom Hayden kicked out of the state assembly for Tom Hayden's uh, Vietnam War activism. And almost came to fisticuffs, if I remember correctly.
2: In an appellate court decision Uh uh, War veterans versus Hayden that determined that the legislature is the sole judge of quality. That is true. <laughs> due to that, yes.
0: So, um, and this is 93, so this is a year before the Republicans on paper took over power of the assembly, but Willie held on to it for a year. But um, anyway, so, oh God, I don't really don't want to go to this meeting. And then we hear one of the stalls opening up, and our hearts just drop, start sweating. And it's not clearly not Bill <laughs> Ferguson. I'm like, oh, thank God. So we go in with our advisor. Um, and we talk to the, the assistant. Oh yes, we have an appointment with Mister Mister some member Ferguson. Oh oh okay. Well, the chief of staff wants to talk to you. It was his chief of staff that was in the men's bathroom oh, on that floor that day. So I I will always remember that. Now I've gotten in trouble for my words since, but <laughs> usually it's because I've tried to. But well, what what other advice, uh, we're, we're, we're starting to run a little bit long here, but what other advice would you have for people, to, particularly for people that are young lobbyists around here, like that one, the walls always have ears, but also people that might be looking into this about what assets they might want to have before they even start thinking seriously about time either in the building as a staffer on a path to being a lobbyist or Starting to shop around. Maybe they have a, gra- a graduate, a law degree, they've worked in a political campaign in the past, they want to just go directly into lobbying.
1: Yeah, you know, um, a couple of things I would mention. When I was working for the Judicial Council and hiring advocates, I would always ask what they thought was the most important qualities to have. And it's the same list you see over and over again. But I do remember that one of the persons who I hired, and she was fantastic as a lobbyist, added into that patience and timing and man if i would if i want to teach uh, somebody um, wh- about what to expect and how to um, prosper i would go through that same list of cliched things that you and i and everybody else would probably immediately think of in terms of uh, knowing the process um, having uh, political skills being a good communicator et etc cetera, et cetera. patience and timing i would put make sure it's on the list and nobody ever thinks of those. But boy, is that, is that true? Um, There's, you know, there's a whole host of things. I, and to sort of short circuit this, I know you're running out of time. I break down all the qualities and think, I've tried to conceptualize this and I've come down with four categories of things that I think are really, almost all the things that you can think of fit into one or more of those. I think you need to be a good diagnostician, a good analyst, a good um, uh, strategist and a good tactician. And when I teach my class, I obviously go into what each of those consists of, but I think that really um, fosters a good understanding of the things that you're, you're called
0: on to do. Chris, do you have to add to that?
2: Enjoy what you do. <laughs> I think uh, those who work in and around the capital and are involved in public policy a wonderful opportunity. I love the process. I love the institution. And so, you know, I'm very fortunate to have found something that I enjoy what I do. I love the public policy debate, and I love to work in the lawmaking process. So
0: You don't have to be a partisan. You can approach it from just Loving the process and the history as much as the politics people think everything is so partisan particularly they look at the you know The legislature colored dark blue right now, you know as Paul has said that won't last You know things change and we've been here. (laughs) We've been here and you've got the mod squad and we're watching those races play out and that's been what I'm covering right now is kind of the shift from the inter-party races exactly. to the intra-party races exactly. and uh, I'd like to actually write something on that long form uh, soon but um, but it really is about the love of the process you're not gonna put up with the wins and losses that you might have or you're not going to put up with the losses because you're going to have them in this business the disappointments unless you love it and you have that comprehensive background and understanding in history and so that's why I mentioned earlier that we're having that question of the last veto, um, and I think it was a was there a Petrus bill too that was ve- that was an override, or was it an Alquist? It was either there was a Petrus or an Alquist bill that was also. And of course, who do we turn to? It was Alex Vassar with the California <laughs> State Library because yeah. he loves legislative history, and we always turn to him for that. Yeah. So, well, thank you mo- very much. The book again is a practitioner's guide to lobbying and advocacy in California, uh, written or uh, edited by Chris McKayley and Ray Labov, with over forty authors. And um, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on a copy, and I will put a copy of it with uh, this podcast and put it out in the Nooner. Uh, so, thank you very much, guys. Well, thank you. Thank you again for listening. This is your host Scott Lay. And I uh, enjoyed my conversation yesterday with Ray Labov and Chris McKaley again about their book, A Practitioner's Guide to Lobbying and Advocacy in California. It's a manual written by leading government relations officials. Those of you that have been around town for a while, you'll recognize most of the names in the table of contents. And uh, for those that you don't know the names, you should get to know them because they're uh, some of the legends of Sacramento. Um, And I'm going to find this book helpful even though I'm no longer lobbying after 20 years of doing so. Thank you again for listening to Nooner Conversations.